to the Imaginators podcast, live and in person. You've been a studio audience before. You have. Anyway, the questions that we're kind of looking at today, and hopefully the conversation will just weave in and out of these three questions. But if you need something a little more structured to kind of hang some of these thoughts on, what is beauty? Why is it important? And what does it have to do with God and or worship? So beauty, um, I actually did some work on this in my dissertation. Um, But I reference... um, a Swiss theologian called Hans Urs von Balthasar. Lovely man, very verbose, so you might not want to read his work. But he has so many wonderful things to say. Uh, But he talks about what is beauty. And he uses these two things, two Latin words. One is lumen, and one is species. So lumen, just meaning light, and he uses it to mean splendor or glory, radiance. And then the second one is species or the outward form of something. So it's basically talking about the inner glory or splendor of something, and then the outward form of something. And he says beauty happens when these two things are in sync. So they're saying the same thing or giving you the same sense or picture. So, and he says, and this is perfectly visible in the person of Jesus. The inward glory and the outward form are always in perfect sync with each other. So he says, even at the point of his greatest suffering and even death, in death, there is a beauty because the inward splendor and glory and sacrificial love of God is entirely united with the outward form that that is taking at that very moment. And he says, that's how you know something is beautiful. It has an integrity about it. So it's not superficial. It's the inside matching the outside. That's kind of the shorthand I use. And um, if you look at the book of Genesis, And there's a theme word in the book of Genesis. Does anyone want to tell me what that is? Pretend we're in Sunday school. Creation? Creation? Yes. Good. Thousand dollars to that person right over there. In Monopoly money. Uh, (laughs) Chris will be writing the checks. Uh, (laughs) No, the word good, which is the Hebrew word tov. You might have heard matzel tov, right? But tov is this word good, and it's not just meaning good as in he's a good boy or she's a good girl. It's the sense of good, beautiful, working the way it was meant or the way it was created to work and function. So again, this function or form matching totally with the creation or the actual nature of a thing. So this thing in sync, this, it's holistic really, is what beauty is, it's very holistic. So if something can even look unattractive to our eyes in an outward form, it might not actually be because it is saying something that matches exactly what's on the inside. So someone doing an ugly cry, that word ugly is there, but it's actually a beautiful cry it is if it's people in a moment of pain and suffering, letting that be known and seen in their world is a way of being vulnerable and inviting healing in. That's a beautiful moment. So that's one way. That's just a, a little bit of talk about what beauty is to frame it a little bit so that when we throw that word around, we know what we're talking about. We're not talking about a symmetrical face or certain measurements in the body or a certain color or hue or anything like that. We're talking about some kind of integrity that requires you to take a look beyond what's on the outward to look at what's actually inside and are those two things working in sync instead of fighting against each other. And I really love love that idea, actually. Um, And we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but I'm, I'm actually hearing something a little bit new for me, the idea of lumen and species, inward glory and outward form. One of the things that I've noticed in the church is that um, we tend to value one over the other, right? And on some level, that's okay because it's okay for us to find beauty in unobvious places. And maybe, and, and maybe our metrics for that are a bit complicated sometimes. But you know what happened? What happened this morning, right? Um, uh, when Amos made the declaration, this is a beautiful room, right? What a beautiful place to be or something like that right after a worship. Well, no, it's, it's an ugly room. I mean, let's be, let's be frank. It's not, it's not a particularly lovely room. It's a low ceiling. The lighting is awful in here. Um, 
you know, the room is not reflective necessarily of the beauty that was taking place, right? Now, we were beautiful, and the Holy Spirit was beautiful in this, in this space, and so we can identify those things. Um, but one of the things that is interesting is, particularly for us in the vineyard, what, is it, what does it look like to actually line those things together so that the inward glory, the thing that we, that we love so much when we gather, when we worship, when we glimpse the person of God... Um, what does it look like for us to actually have, what, what does that outward form look like as, as, a, as an extension, as a, you know, that's, um, and of course it's easy to go the other way as well, where we focus on the outward form and lose the inward glory, right? And so, um, you know, and I'll come back to this later, but a couple of years ago I had my first real exposure to cathedrals, I'd never been in, uh, like, you know, the, the, the really old ones, right, um, in Europe. And absolutely stunning. And there was a sense of holiness in that space, and certainly in the history, um, some of the history, some of the history is very bloody behind those buildings, but that's another story. But they're empty buildings in the sense that they're not living communities anymore, right? And so part of the discussion of beauty for me, is, as, you know, and particularly with this frame of luminant species is to ask the question, are there ways that we can allow our outward form to be an extension expression that's, that's, in, that's in balance with, with the inner glory? What do you think, Matt? Yes. Was that a question? <laughs> I don't remember. Um, yeah, and we do live in a bit of a dualistic society where we've separated the body from the spirit in some ways. So... Um, I was just noticing that in our gatherings away, in some way, I notice in myself I have to work really hard to be embodied when I'm in a worship setting because we sit still and we play and we sing, that's part of it, but the rest of our body, what is it doing? Maybe playing an instrument, um, but it, it's a little bit disembodied. Do you go to, perhaps to uh, a church in one of the African countries, and there's so much more embodiment, the entire body. There's always movement, there's dancing, there's louder noises, there's a different set of noises than just singing, right? So uh, it can make us a bit uncomfortable. We're much more used to being very controlled in our body and our emotions, especially in a public setting. And I even noticed that in and, and we're having wonderful, intimate times here. And whenever anyone gets a little bit teary, what's the first thing they say? I'm sorry. And I thought, can we just get rid of that? Why are you sorry for suddenly the inside glory, real person coming out and showing itself so that we can access that and, re- and, and relate to it in some way? And I was just, just me, because I've been in some black gospel churches. No one is ever apologizing for being emotional there. Never. There's a delight in it. It's so funny. What do we call the face that is in full, if, you know, fully beholding the glory of God, or what fully beholding? But like, clearly, they're having we're having an encounter with God, and tears are going, and snot is going. What do we call it? Ugly. We call it the ugly face, uh, ugly cry. Such a twisted. Isn't that twisted? Right? Yeah. So that's just one thing I noticed today that I think I'm trying to be mindful of we're actually harming ourselves in some way. We're shutting down our integrity. Uh, We're shutting down the beauty of enjoying a community fully alive. I want to be attentive to where we're disconnected somewhere from our body and from our uh, what's happening on the inside. Mm. So I could probably go right there to iconic and idolatrous gaze. We've talked about this before, so if you're a listener, you might have heard this before, but We'll say it again because it's worth saying. Um, When I was doing my um, doctoral work, I shared an office with a few people. And one of those men was, uh, he used to be a Byzantine monk. And he was trained as an iconographer. So he had, it's a lengthy process. They train you not only how to paint, but he said this entire, it's very prescribed, but he said the entire thing to where I mix my own paints, I pick all the colors, I do all of this, this is all considered an act of worship and service to God, not just the finished icon. But And what his job was, his vocation, more than a job, his calling was to paint icons that people would then use in worship. 
And that's what he did. So he was doing some other work. But I asked him a bit about what he was working on now. And he said, well, I'm working on um, their different gaze of the iconic gaze. Icon is in there. Iconic gaze and the idolatrous gaze. So he said, when you're looking at an icon, and he's from the Orthodox tradition, so that's very prevalent in his tradition. We don't have it as much. Uh, but when you're looking at an icon, he said, it's like a window. You're meant to kind of look through it or go through it and actually encounter it's a tool of encounter. So when you're looking at an icon, he says he calls it the iconic gaze, your look is meant to move towards an encounter with a person. So when I look at a photograph of Dean, my husband, I am look, I'm remembering, you know, oh, he's not here right now, and there's just, I'm in having an encounter because this is a beloved person. So photographs of family and loved ones act as windows into an encounter, a reminder uh, of their presence and their relationship with us. On the other hand, when you look at an idolatrous gaze, so I would say looking at a magazine with fashion models or cars, I don't know what you people look at, or Justin Timberlake, I don't know. Gear. In, what? Gear. Gear, sound gear. <laughs> and, well, beer? You know, yeah. <laughs> okay. Are there beer magazines? Probably. Fill in the blank. Whatever you're looking at, it's very two-dimensional. It's not looking for an encounter. It's actually looking to consume. So to take, not to give oneself to, as you would in an encounter. So it's just looking to take, and it actually would be awkward if that thing suddenly came out of the page. You, you want distance, right? So let's say you're looking through a magazine, oh, that's my favorite movie star, I got a crush on him. If he actually walked into the room, you'd be like, I am so embarrassed right now, like I'm not ready for this. You don't want an encounter, you want distance. You want to admire from a distance while you're consuming their beauty in some way. So this is the, the difference that we kind of have to be aware of. How do we engage in our worship, in our spaces, in our faith community, in our kind of interactions with people especially, but our ideas of God. Are we looking to keep a certain distance from God, just have a flat kind of encounter and consume something, take something from it, with ever having actually that, that awkwardness of intimacy and, and encounter where it's an exchange? Or are we actually looking to have an encounter where we will be changed? When you're looking at a magazine, you're very rarely changed, I don't think. But encounter, the thing that pulls us towards it, it's attractive. That's another thing beauty is. It's attractive. We are drawn towards it, and the goal is for an encounter to happen. When I first, when Matt and I, it was a number of years ago that we kind of first had this discussion um, just in a living room somewhere, and... Um, it, that language for me hit very, very hard. The distinction between, like, hard as in it had gravity. It landed. The distinction between a, a, um, a uh, <laughs> such powerful language, I just, I just went, boom, I lost it. No, iconic gaze. So an iconic gaze versus an idolatrous gaze. And, like, I think it's worth, I think it's worth taking note and just really pausing around those two things because it speaks so much. Because I intuitively, instantly knew what the difference. I knew the difference in my own relationships. I knew the difference between my own sense of work and agenda. Um, that there was some work that I was doing where I was trying to cultivate uh, an, um, an iconic gaze, right? In the in the, in the in the face of, of, of a group of people in a congregation. And that's good work, right? But then I also realized that maybe there were moments where I was trying to cultivate an idolatrous gaze, which was a very, very sort of striking thing to consider and to contemplate as we use and, and, and step into the rhythms, not use, but, but participate in and celebrate beauty it was such a helpful, almost a metric, almost a test to ask, okay, what, what's, behind this, what's behind this thing right now that we're creating? And, uh, and so that is something that has, that has stuck with me. And it's a question that I ask in just about um, every 
environment that maybe I would be participating in, helping create. Um, and so I, I find it just a very interesting, a very interesting frame. Um, just to kind of open up a question out, out there, um, are there any stories that come to mind for like personal kind of stories of the kinds of beauty that we've been talking about? Just those moments where you see you're in this idea of inward glory and outward form coming together and you recognize that you're in the presence of something that is really, really beautiful, like breathtaking, I think. Like we lose words. If you have any stories, we'd love to hear those. And, and conversely, just around some of this, some of this other stuff of, um, of you know, idolatrous gaze um, versus iconic gaze, like just that, you know, are there resonances that are there? If there are, they're certainly open to, to come and to, to share. Yeah. If you want to come to the mic, that's awesome, because, yes, okay. I know it's weird, but we're just all in a living room here. So. Hello. Hi. Hey. Um, kind of going off of what you mentioned before about, you know, like the ugly cry and how like we're so used to calling it ugly, but it's not, it's actually the most beautiful thing. Um, when I hear the word beauty, um, I'm very image based. So whenever I hear like, if we're going to talk about beauty today, I think of like the beauty section in a, in a market or something. Right. Um, and it's makeup and it's eyebrow plucking utensils and it's, you know, things that cover up what we have, right, in order to look different. Um, but going back to what you said before, Matt, I think that beauty is like that. The inner self showing the outer self and that it's actually an authentic moment. It's like that encounter. Um, and so I'm not sure how to relate that back to the gazes. I'm a little confused. Um, so some clarity would be, or just to clarify that for me would be really helpful. But I think it's so interesting to think that in this day and age like covering up is what's beautiful but not being authentic like it's not cool or millennial to be authentic right you have to be um built up around the scaffolding that's given to you as opposed to just showing what you have authentically um so that's pretty much what i had to say there's probably more but I'm like at my back to everybody. No, it's no. good. That's really good. I yeah. like the what you said there about the outward structure. We're almost molding ourselves or forming ourselves into what has been set up for us right. instead of it coming from the inside out. This mm. is what Jesus was always doing, saying, you've heard the law, it say this and this, but I'm telling you what's in your heart. Mm. Like, don't just try to conform to an outward appearance of what is good, mm -hmm. good behavior. But he said, what's on the inside will naturally come out. So if you're having a really good day and you feel just so full of joy and love, that is going to show, hopefully, in your body and on your face. Yeah. And you don't need to cover that up in order mm -hmm. to uh, form or mold or adhere to some external pressure of what is beautiful. Right. Like less hair above your eyes. Yeah. That is so random. Who decided yeah. that, um, that that was beautiful? I feel like it's almost when you notice something that's been there the whole time. Um, like I cry so much more on these retreats than I do in Auburn, New York, where I lead worship. Um, and I'm, I was asking myself before, like, why do I cry so much here? Or, or you know, before we were in Vermont or New Hampshire. Um, but why do I cry so much more on retreats as opposed to Auburn, which is where I lead worship? Um, it's the same God. It's a lot of the same people, you know, praise Jesus. Um, but why am I crying? Why is it so much more real to me on retreats? Um, and that's kind of a big question, but one thing that I wanted to relate back to the beauty, and then I promise I'll sit back down so other people can come up here and, and talk into the microphone. Um, but it's, it's, I think it's a level of noticing, too, because I feel like in Auburn, um, I'm doing, I'm, I have a responsibility to do things, to, to lead worship, um, but I'm not noticing it for myself. I'm trying to reflect it for other people. Um, but when I come here, I have like no responsibilities and I can do whatever I want, right? Um, and I get to notice God and like listen to those whispers that were intended for me the whole time that are still in Auburn and still in Syracuse and still in other places too. Um, but it's noticing that beauty as opposed to kind of glossing over it. 
Um, and there's probably more answers for that question too, but I just, this is kind of sparking, like that's, that's what this is sparking in me right now. So thanks for holding this and asking these questions. Awesome. So, all right, someone else's turn. Come on down. Hello. Hello. So for me, I've been thinking about how there is nothing about Jesus that was attractive on the physical that we hear in scripture, but yet mobs and masses of people flock to him because of the power and the spirit that was present. And I think for me, as I'm stepping more into the role that God has for me, the most beautiful thing is when people step into the identity that they were truly created to be. So going back to how were we created, what were we made for, are we existing in that space of what we were meant to do and, and to be, that's the most amazing thing. So when you see the Spirit of God fall on a room and people say yes, and encounter God in a new way, and therefore they see themselves differently, that is true beauty. And as the church, that is our role, is to help people see the God in them, right? How we reflect God's nature and the image of God in the full way that we were meant to. So that's my little two cents. Yeah, that's lovely. I think there's a commonality between what you guys both talked about and like both of those things require a pretty high degree of vulnerability, I think. Um, like I don't think I've ever encountered anything that was, that was uh, surrounded by defensiveness that I would have used the word that was a beautiful moment, right? Um, but a place where we can be honest and vulnerable and where we are, and even kind of this, like, why do I cry more in this space? Um, you know, I wonder if sometimes that might just be that there's a level of safety that is in this place to let that stuff shine through a little bit. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I certainly don't want to hark on, I mean, it's, it's not wrong for people to wear makeup, but there is something about the idea of, of, of covering up something that, like, like um, that is so a part of the spirit of the age, right? Like, that's what, for those of us who spend any time at all in the social media world, like, the level of editing and covering up that goes on in that environment, in that space... It's no wonder that we don't use the word beautiful about a lot of social media interactions, right? That's not the word that we would drift to. Um, and so I, that's kind of what I hear, what I hear in those, in those two, you know, just the, the vulnerability and the willingness to be, um, to, to kind of let that, to let the truth shine through, right? To let the reality of who we are shine through is, uh, that's, is very beautiful. Yeah, um, another thing that I've been thinking about these past few days is the difference between a curated gallery and a collective story. So one of my favorite artists is Vincent van Gogh. Vincent van Gogh. Uh, anybody else a fan? Woo. Yes, Vincent. Uh, it's a great movie, too. It, oh, the movie. If you haven't seen the movie done with painted animation... It's like you're living inside his paintings. Anyway, I don't know how much, how many of you know some of his story, but uh, his probably his most famous work is Starry Night. I was, yeah, if you've seen that one, if not, look at look it up later or now. I don't care. Um, yeah, so Starry Night. But I I don't know if how much you know, but Van Gogh struggled with mental illness, um, and after he had that episode where he cut off part of his left ear, he went and signed into an asylum, just said, I, I need help, I'm not safe right now for myself. So he spent a year in that asylum, and he painted 142 paintings, including Starry Night. And Starry Night he actually painted for memory, because he was inside it, he didn't have access to the outside right then, and he loved to just paint in 
right, looking directly at what he was painting, but he painted it from memory inside an asylum while he was suffering. And people would see that in a gallery. Let's say we have all those 142 paintings in a gallery, don't know his story, and just go around and say, these are so beautiful. And what if Vincent was right there? What if we all went to the asylum and saw Vincent painting, and he's collected all these works and stacked them all up, and he tells you about the stories and what he's doing, and then he doesn't make sense for a while, or he maybe just gets... So he has an episode or something, and we're going, this is more beautiful. Because these, what he's seeing while he is uh, in some way not whole makes us more whole. It's his gift to the world. And to me, that is more beautiful because it's not curated. It's not separated from the story. And I think what we want to do in worship is always, we, uh, we talked about it, always inviting people into the story, into more of the story, more of each other's story, and we're all gathered up into God's story. And in my experience, I'm a pastor and I speak and I, I lead worship, I always try to be the, be what I would want other people to take away from that. So be a safe place. Be a place where you can just say, I'm not having a, a good day today. Can we just uh, get real for a minute or something? You know, where take the makeup off is what I'm trying to say. Take the makeup off as a leader. So I'm not curating something so that all the people that come think, well, then now I have to curate my life. And how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Thanks. Almost killed my husband on the way here. Or whatever. <laughs> you know, that's just normal. Um, but that we don't curate the Sunday gathering or whatever day of the week that, that the church, the faith community experience so much that we feel like we're in this museum and gallery and we can't touch and it's all pretty and we just look at it, but that we feel like we're in a collective story that's messy and real and yet more beautiful because it is so connected to not only our story but each other's stories and the story of God. Does that make sense in some way? And then just go look at Vincent's paintings. They're just, there's beauty and pain and new ways of seeing in so many of them. And I, when I usually read an author or I uh, look at the work of an artist, I try to read their story in conjunction with looking at their work because I get so much more out of it. It's not separated from their real life. Mm. We, have a, we have a thought. I have one more thought. Oh my gosh. You can even um, have three more thoughts if okay, you Okay, cool. I love scenic beauty, like all of us do. But I've lived in places of extreme beauty, but there's a price to pay for extreme beauty. There usually are the most intense weather systems or animals you have to fight or whatever it may be. Like if you think about, I always think of extreme beauty with Glacier National Park um, and the jagged glacial Rocky Mountains and the grizzly bears, and all of the things that go into one of the most beautiful places. When I was on a hike and we we're looking at Heaven's Peak, which is its name, um, covered in snow with a thought of, there's a grizzly bear in the next meadow. <laughs> we better be careful. Um, but beauty comes out of these extremes that you know other places can't equal. Mm. So I think there's something to that as well with beauty, that there's a price to pay for that. Hmm. And as you're talking, here's another, here's another question that we can, sort of rhetorical, unless you have an answer. Is beauty safe? <laughs> I see a head shaking, no. Define safe, Chris. Def yeah, well, sure, define safe. Um, is it, does beauty does beauty bring with it danger? Is it dangerous? Is it possible to have harm? Like when I think of safety, like we talk about creating a safe place to be vulnerable, and there's beauty in that, right? But if we're vulnerable in a safe place, are we? Is there still something to be paid for? Like, is that still a costly space to be in? In my experience, in my experience, it, it is. In my experience, there's still a bit of a reckoning, even if I'm among my closest friends in the world. 
And I really truly let some of that stuff out that I typically don't let others see. Is there a reckoning later? Yeah, in my life there's a reckoning. There's a costliness to it. And I think particularly in the world of the church, I think it's a very pertinent question to ask because there is, is there such thing as safe beauty? Right? I think that there's a way to play it safe, but I'm not sure that we get to the, I'm not sure that we get to the balance between the, the inward glory and the outward form if we play it safe. I think that when you bring those things in line, there's all, that, that there is an inherent cost or a, or a risk that exists in that place, right? And that might be kind of an interesting way to think about, just on a practical level, if we consider what it looks like to create beautiful spaces for the sake of our communities, to create beautiful spaces for the sake of, of formation of, um, of the followers of Jesus and the family that's gathered together in that. Um, you know, I don't want to be dismissive of... Um, kind of what we might think of if we think of a, a church that's doing well. When you walk into a space, you go, well, what a beautiful space this is, right? I have a certain image that comes into mind, particularly in the, if I'm thinking within the modern world anyways, right? Um, great stage design, really good lighting, you know, um, pleasant lines, good color choices, that kind of thing. Um, but that's a certain kind of aesthetic. That's a certain kind of look, right? But I think this is correlated. I don't think I'm rabbit trailing too much. Um, we have a G.K. Chesterton quote in the other room um, by the painting that's been, the ongoing sort of painting that's been in process over the last few days. And I don't remember it specifically but it basically has something, to, it has something to do with saying that the frame is the most beautiful part of the painting because we need frames in order to, to perceive. I mean, it's, he's a writer, and so it's very eloquent. Go read it. If you're listening to this online, look it up after. Um, it's a great quote. But I wonder if some of the things that we do, some of the aesthetics that we introduce, the ways that we shape our spaces... Um, if on some level what we're doing is if we're creating a frame, something that frames the actual work of art, which is fundamentally the community of God, the people of God. The um, I don't know. This is a new idea to me. Maybe that's a... <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. I have a couple of different thoughts. Okay. Oh. I guess I would say the first thing that kept coming to mind was something one of my life group leaders used to say. If you look in nature, look at birds, like cardinals. The female cardinal blends in with the surroundings, and then the male is bright red, and that has a purpose. So it's uh, the male can fly away and take away the danger so it catches the eye of the fox or I don't know, whatever. And I just think there has to be something there. Not to say that beauty around us, a frame, isn't good, but I wonder if it takes the focus away. I don't know. I'm going to leave that there. And... I like to wear makeup. And I say That's that. Okay. That's I okay. say that because um not as a mask, but to accentuate and kind of like isn't it interesting that it's the male bird that's beautiful? <laughs> or what we would say is beautiful and red. Okay. And then so isn't it interesting that Typically, men don't wear makeup to accentuate their features, but women want to, well, I want to <laughs> do that. And I'm going to stop that there. One more thing. <sighs> so my children are beautiful to me. And 
for instance, my youngest was with her grandmother, went to a thrift shop, and the woman that owned the thrift shop gave her some jewelry because she was pretty. That's what she said. You're so beautiful. Here, have some jewelry. And I was like, oh. This used to happen to my oldest. She'd go to the store and old men in line, here's a dollar, you're so pretty, here's a dollar. And not in a like creepy way, just they saw something beautiful and they wanted to appreciate it. And it's so easy to twist it, isn't it? And it's so easy to then because I was having a conversation with my four-year-old about, well, you know, it's the beauty on the inside that really counts, you know? But then how does that not take away from liking what she does look like on the outside? And I think that is a struggle. I've had that struggle. Like, so am I supposed to not try to look beautiful so that I can only show God's beauty or can they work hand in hand and can you appreciate like wow you're beautiful and that's not I think that's okay but it can be everything gets misconstrued that's something Adam Russell said the first one I went to is God created beauty and then Satan comes and twists everything around so that's it um, yeah, it's interesting. What I heard, good comments. I'll just let most of them sit there for you to ponder. But the one thing I did want to respond to is, "You're beautiful." Here's a dollar. And again, no offense to these older men. It's their context. How do I respond to beauty? I don't know. I want to give something of worth. The only thing I know of worth is money. So we have not been taught or learned how to respond properly or rightly to beauty. So, uh, wow, okay, I just had a thought. I used to work at an art gallery, and um, a single mom was the, the secretary administrator there, brilliant woman, she had not had an easy life, and she was raising uh, two, two boys, teenage boys. And uh, so she worked at this art gallery, and a uh, very competent woman. And one of the other women that worked at the art gallery had a daughter who was an actress. So anyway, so there's, and they kind of, these two children kind of knew each other. And they're early 20s, I suppose, at this point. And the guy said to his mom, why doesn't, I wish that, that girl that's an actress, I wish she would pose more in bikinis and maybe do some topless work. And I thought, like you know this girl. And I thought, he hasn't learned how to respond to beauty. Like a friendship with that girl would be so much more beautiful than a photo of something, and it just made me so sad, and I didn't know what to do with any of that information, and I still don't, but that's what that reminded me of, is that uh, I live in Montreal, and we have a European flavor, and you walk along St. Catherine Street, and there are sex shops and, and places where you can like lap, get lap dances. It's right on the main street, and uh, I'm always praying when I go past them. I say, God, let there never be any men that want to go in there, and there's just no work for these girls, that they would find other meaningful work. Um, but I think we have created the market. We have. Um, because we don't know how to interact with beauty, except kind of added, we don't want relationship, we just want to take something from it or give money to it, in, as in, that is so inappropriate, and I'm not saying anything against those men. I, we are un beauty is meant to undo us. There's a, it's a mysterious element that's like, we grapple for words, we don't have words. How do you respond? We cry, that's what we can do. Uh, but we don't have words very often when we, uh, you know, just go walk out by the lake. 
will you be, well, maybe you will, be writing a poem and being very eloquent and talking about how beautiful the lake is. I just stand there in silence and I go, look, I have no words. I am undone by beauty. And I think if we can learn to just be okay with being undone instead of always feeling like we need to respond in a certain way, I don't, I don't know. I think too that one of the, one of the realities that we kind of keep, even today, just it's like there's, um, the way that we're framing it, we recognize the language of beauty being dangerous and um, costly. I think that, like the the. The fire of, or sorry, the metaphor of fire, I think is really, really appropriate in the conversation around beauty. Because fire is so very important. It is so very necessary for us, particularly those of us in the Northeast and norther of the Northeast. Fire matters, right? But we also know that fire is a destructive force. Fire is a creational force. Right? Fire allows us to live. Um, there, are, there are some, I can't remember the name of them, and probably many of us have heard this before. There are some seeds that, that cannot come to life if, unless they have been through a, a forest fire. Fire is creational, but it also is destructive. And I think it's appropriate to consider those things with, with beauty, and particularly if we lean into that direction, like some of those, some of the comments that, you know, it's like, it's like this, but then it's like that. It's like, it's, beauty's wonderful, but then it can go sideways on us. And, and that's the reality. That's the, that's the truth. And it's, it's one of those things that doesn't really come with, um, like a set of instructions, right? Here's how, here's how to safely use beauty. I mean, the, you know, the scriptures are complicated around this subject, Right? The scriptures are complicated because they are fundamentally beautiful. And yet, some of the, and yet there's some of the ugliest stuff in human literature buried in those pages too. Right? It doesn't pull any punches. And so I think that that's part of the, part of the risk. A friend of mine, um, he, and I, and I think I've mentioned this in other previous episodes, but uh, you know, a guy named Terry Black, a fantastic painter, just a brilliant painter. And, and he described, and he was talking about creativity, but I think it parallels to beauty. He described um, creative work, the best creative work, as kind of being up on the, on the edge of a cliff. And you need to reach out over that cliff to grab the fruit. And you, have, and you actually have to let your balance tip over. You have to trust that there's an updraft. You have to lean in on the updraft to be able to reach out and grab it a little bit. And you know, I think that I think that there's some there's something in that image that is really resonant with me. We don't want to be foolish with this stuff, but um, you know, when I contemplate what it looked like to encounter the gospel and to encounter the church and to encounter the people of God from the get-go for me. I walked into a church as, a, I think I was like a preteen, 12 or something, 13 maybe. And, uh, you know, I encountered a community of people that were just so real and, so, and very genuine and in their love, very genuine. And they met in a cafeteria at a school. That was kind of the meeting place for that for that church, right? And um, now here's the thing. Here's the concern that I have, particularly for, you know, within certain parts of, of, say, the Vineyard Movement particularly, is that sometimes we can take that and actually turn that into a virtue. Like, well, I have the ugliest building and God still moves here. And isn't that a great and wonderful thing, right? And I think that part of, part of the conversation around around this, around beauty, is 
What does it what does it mean for the church to celebrate it? What does it mean for the church to recognize that beauty beauty actually can like unto itself unto itself it's it's an empty pit, right? Like un, and that I, that brings us back to the idolatrous gaze. I think when we're trying to consume and to own beauty, right? Then we're getting ourselves into into trouble. Um, but when we recognize that beauty can lead us somewhere, right? Then then it be, then it becomes this iconic language, this idea of looking at something, and it's not the it's not this thing that I'm looking at. It's actually what it's pointing me towards that is powerful, and and that's the, and we need to think about that even within the within the the. the our understanding of music, even like we t- we've talked this weekend about the density of some of some of what's happening within our modern expressions of, of singing together, and there are. Well, I'll tell you this story. Um, this happened a couple of years ago. I think Matt, you were in the room actually. I won't say specifically where, but uh, it was a smallish group of people. Some some leaders in the Canadian Vineyard gathered together, and. Uh, and there was a few of us who were leading worship. And if I do say so myself, we were killing it. <laughs> it was, actually, I know you were there because you, you said something about it, Matt. It was such a good moment. Um, it was like the jam was on. We were in a beautiful room. There was this massive stone fireplace and the light was great. We were surrounded by people that we, who knew each other well and loved each other. And there was trust with the musicians. And we were just leaning in. And the groove, was, it wasn't even big. It was just a few of us. But we were so in sync. And, um, and I think it was Matt who got up and said something to the effect of, this music is so beautiful right now. In fact, it's so beautiful I'm having a hard time seeing Jesus. Or something to that. Do you remember saying that? Something. I mean, it was something like that, right? And and it was like we realized, oh, we have to. We like, we've shifted into something here that we need. We need to actually dial the sucker down in this space, right? And so I think it's having a relationship with beauty that allows us to have like. So here's here's the here was the most encouraging bit about that. And maybe this speaks to the kind of beauty that we want to celebrate and create in the church, beauty of relationships as well as beautiful work, right? What I loved about that was that even though that stung a little bit, there was so much trust in the room and a recognition that, oh, you know what, this is not why we're here, that we were able to shift gears and find Jesus in that space together, and that to me made that the most, that was, that was the most beautiful part of that moment was that that, that was just the safety of community, right? And, uh, um, and so maybe that's like as an archetype, as a way of thinking about the kinds of space that I, the kinds of spaces and communities that I long for and want to be part of helping to create. It's when that kind of thing is taking place. We're not shying away from it, but we're able to course correct. We're able to recognize what's taking place and to think, oh, no, right now, right now my eyes are set just a little too low metaphorically. I need to raise them up a little bit in this in this space. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And um, I wonder if we could. I don't know how long we're going. I think we're gonna wind her down a little bit. Yeah, we can soon. Or, yeah. um, but I wonder if we could maybe shift a little bit to say to this question: What does it have to do with worship in and your worship settings in particular? Um, and I'll just say what ours is. We meet in a rented room. It's a library. It's a historical building. So the building itself uh, is quite beautiful. But there's nothing in it other that says this is a sacred space in that way. Um, there's nice wood um, and old rickety chairs. Uh, but there's nothing about the space itself that has any focal point. Um, so what we did once was we uh, asked everyone, bring one item from your home that's meaningful to you, that helps you uh, think about God or reminds you of God, and we'll just set them all around the room and make sure it's small enough that you can bring it and take it home afterwards because we don't have a place to store any of it. But a way of asking the community to bring 
the beauty to the room and to that experience instead of it all landing on the ones leading and feeling like I have to bring that I don't there's lots of uh, beauty in the room in the people and they have it's making this collective story again instead of me coming really early and setting everything up in you know putting up some paintings and some fabric and all kinds of and flowers or something I've curated that space but to me it was much more beautiful to have a collective story where everyone brought something and that became part of our worship that day is that we spent a little time looking at what people had brought and they told us the story behind it. And that was a really, I thought, we just made this space sacred with, with our collective stories and our little knickknacks that we brought from home, whatever it was. So that's how we made it work in our particular space. And I'm sure, I don't know, if anyone has stories of how, whether it's a struggle, what to do in your space, or think, something that you felt, yeah, we tried something and it worked. This, this brought some beauty into the room and it felt like a sacred holy space when we gathered together. While you're thinking about that, I'll tell another story. Um, a couple of years ago, my wife and I, we go out and we play like we perform. We, we gig and play shows and do the, the music like the singer-songwriter thing as a duo. And uh, But a couple of years ago, we were just getting started with that. And uh, I... I I want to be a bit careful. I don't, I don't know that anyone involved in this would hear this, but we had one event that we were part of that was with some fairly notable Christian recording artists in Canada. And, um, and it was fine, but that's the language I would use for that particular gathering. Of, we, were, we were making music together. And it was it was fine. <laughs> yeah. There was there was such a an interesting dichotomy of like trying to be Christian to one another and yet recognizing that there was just some like you're finding out where you fit in the space and what where you were on the order of importance and and there was some ego stuff that was going on. Not that there were egotists there, but ego was part of, was part of how we were relating to one another, right? And it was like, nah, okay, that was interesting. Not bad, but not, it was fine. So the following day, we, um, we went down to this open mic, uh, actually in the, in the city that I, that, that I now pastor in, in Guelph, we went to this open mic. And we hadn't really done the open mic thing at that point. We've since become addicted to open mics. Um, but we went to this place, and, uh, and, and it was populated by some really, really remarkable local artists, singer-songwriters. I mean, some of the stuff that we heard was just stunning. Like, you had trouble using language afterwards. It was beautiful stuff. And... And some people got up, and it was their and, and and it was their very first time playing in front of anybody, and it was a, such a different kind of beautiful, right? But it was so extremely generous. The space was so very generous, and and the absence of ego and 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 positioning and trying to figure out it was like you, there wasn't a f- trying to figure out where we were, there was just a celebration of who we were around, right? And as we walked away from that, I felt a certain kind of sadness because I had, that afternoon at that open mic, I experienced a quality of connection and vulnerability that I have never experienced before. As somebody who has been in the creative communities of the church for over 20 years, I thought to myself, not like in a berated, like, oh, wow. Like, it, just, it just occurred to me that I had never encountered that quality of generosity in a space before, creative generosity. But it was also interesting just how high the ceiling was, so to speak, and how low the floor was. And, but, in both, but there was so much beauty on, that was there. I would use that word. 
And, uh, and I, don't, I haven't quite like cracked the code on what that looks like in our spaces as the church, but it sure made me hunger for something because that was like, this looks, this smells so much like Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Um, uh. Any other thoughts? One thing that, um, we have a lot of Catholic churches in Montreal, so if, and I could ask each one of, of you this, and perhaps you can answer it for yourself. What is your go-to place to get a, to enjoy some beauty? I have two go-to places. Uh, uh, like I said, a lot of Catholic churches, historic buildings, beautiful buildings in Montreal, and the Catholics open their churches during the day. They're just open all week long. So, you know, just walk anywhere, and oh, there's a Catholic church. I'm just going to go inside, and I'm just going to sit inside and take it all in. And there might be a few other people there, but sometimes I'm the only person there. And I just sit there, and I look, and I think, someone spent years, like, painting these ceilings or carving that there. Like, that was, they spent part of their life on this. And now I get to just look at it. And people pray, have prayed here for years, sometimes hundreds of years. And just to soak that all in and say, there's an investment of beauty that's happened in here, and I'm reaping some of that right now. And let me add my own beauty, my own prayers into this space so that when more people come in here, they reap that as well. Uh, beauty intensifies something. So we were talking about uh, fire. Like beauty intensifies mm. things in a certain way. Um, my other go-to place is to just go outside. Right now, my fascination last year was with grass. I loved grass. I mean, I would just go outside and touch blades of grass and go, you guys are so amazing. And look, there's like just, you just go on forever. I'm so sorry if we're walking on you, but you're just the most beautiful thing. Every single blade standing upright, curved perfectly to catch the rain so that it's funneled all down to your roots and then you're sharing your root system with everybody around you so that you feed each other so that when it gets really dry, no one's going to go hungry. So I was fascinated with grass. And then I read a book on trees, so now it's trees. So yes, I've gone out quite a bit and right out front, outside of our buildings, they've planted the birch trees in sets of three, which I think is beautiful, because trees are community beings, can I use that word? Um, and in our cities, and we curate our cities and our park spaces, they plant trees far apart in lovely rows on the boulevard in front of my house, and actually plant them just far enough apart that they can't share roots. It makes me so sad. Um, so trees are meant to live in community because they share an ecosystem uh, of not only their roots, but also when they grow up, the little baby plants, they have this canopy so they can grow up and be safe and, uh, and not get the full brunt of the weather system. They're protected from the winds and everything until they're high enough. And then the old trees fall over and give way so that the new ones can rise up and make a new canopy. It's a whole ecosystem. It's, it's the most beautiful picture of community I've come across in the past year. So uh, The Hidden Life of Trees, plug for that book, written by a forester in, uh, I believe, in Germany, where they cut down all their forests and then had to replant them again. So those are my two go-to places. Um, so I just love that they've planted, I see that one right outside the window, they haven't planted trees in singles, which is basically it shortens the lifespan of a tree by about half wow. uh, when it's just in isolation because there's no, no, uh, no sharing of resources and it's just at the mercy of all the elements. And it's usually surrounded by concrete in some way too. So it just has a shorter lifespan. They, throw, they grow, they do, uh, but I love trees. They just, uh, I can't put it into words. I love trees. Well, this They're rings, beautiful. Go this ahead. kind of reminds me of a, uh, we haven't talked a lot about the difference between seen and unseen beauty. And often, um, yes, I will go to places of worship that have history, like a Lutheran church or Episcopalian church or something like that. But also, you know, our church is very plain, it's kind of like this room to me. It's, there's not much going on. However, to me, it's a beautiful place because of the residue 
of all of the spiritual things that have been going on. So the spirit, you can hear it, you know, in the space, you hear the hum of God, you, you remember, we talk about memories as being very beautiful things, sometimes very fond, um, and it hits us in a certain way. So I think beauty is also in memory, as well as what we're seeing ahead of us. But um, I also think that when beauty touches down, it leaves an element of memory in the very place that it is, um, that we can continue to reap that beauty, even though it may not be in that moment at that time, we can still reflect back. Uh, I will just, no, come up. I just have a tiny little thing. One of my favorite beautiful spots in one of the churches that is not quite as ornate and elaborate in Montreal is they have these beautiful wood, uh, and you know the old style pews where they're in sections, there's just a lot of wood and you, can, you can't like walk down the row, and they have um, big high things. Anyway, they're, they're, the wood is worn down in the front where people have knelt to pray and put their hands on the front of it. And I just came there one time and I sat in there, I just stared at that worn down wood and I thought, how many prayers has this piece of wood seen in its lifetime? And I just, again, I have no words, I just sat there and took that in. That prayers had been said in this place enough to wear down wood. Um, two things came to mind with what is beauty and I, my mind tends to default to the outdoors because I was blessed to grow up in Maine and spent most of my life in Maine. Mm. And so I think, and near the coast too, so I could just hop up my 10 speed and go to the ocean. And then later on, you know, I have memories of screaming down Woods Roads in Northern Maine with Brian Dorkson's creation calls booted on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Going fishing and just, being on a pond in the stillness and uh, listening to the loons. Mm. Um, So to me also there is these moments of beauty bearing being serendipitous, like going down um, a river on a canoe trip and not that that isn't beautiful enough, but then all of a sudden an eagle comes down and stoops in front of the canoe, grabs a fish and just boots right up and we were, the those of us in the canoe were just like jaw dropped mm. and just stunned for like a minute or two just with the beauty and the majesty and the glory. So from, I, d- I default to creation mm. when I think of beauty because and then when I wasn't in Maine, I was in Idaho and I lived two hours in Yellowstone. So it was like being near Glacier and like romping around Yellowstone National Park, which is just like God at his wildest. Yeah, he did an okay job those, at the, those areas, hey? Would you say that was fine, he Chris? Did, was that did, fine? He did an okay job. I think it might so. just uh, um, sort of move to, to land us here, if that's okay. Um, so just in, in, in kind of distilling this maybe, or one final thought from me, uh, you know, I don't have kids, but one thing that I love to see uh, with with my friends' kids and my nieces and nephews over the years is the look on particularly like an infant face when they see something that is beautiful to them. And it's very clear what's going on. It's, It's just a look of pure delight. And... I think that it's very important to remember that this is intrinsic. We, this is not something we, we don't learn to respond to beauty. It's, it's one of our first things that we do, is to, is to learn an, uh, an awe response to, to beauty. And, and so it's a fundamentally human thing. I think, though, it's also a fundamentally God thing. That God celebrates, He clearly celebrates beauty. Um, and so, as we contemplate, so if we, we head from this place and we step into whatever environments that we're helping to create and shape and places where people may encounter some sort of beauty, 
that will lead them into relationship with, with one another and with God. Um, and this, the ways that we perceive beauty are through our senses, right? We see beauty, we smell beauty, we touch beauty, we can, t- we can taste, I mean, I love food. We hear it. And so one of the things that I think we can do is we, as we find ourselves in spaces that we have some influence in, whether they're our homes or our congregations or, where, or workplaces or wherever, but to sort of partner with the work of God in creating beauty and celebrating beauty is to just kind of go through and, and allow our senses to interact with our environment. And what do we see? What do we smell? You know, what can we touch? And if we can do something to, you know, in, in any of those things, if we, can, if we can add something beautiful, you know, maybe thinking through some of these conversations, what is, what is something that's truly beautiful in this space, right? Um, I think that could get us some way down the road. Right? Rather than prescribing, well, this is how you this is how you set up a this is how you set up a sanctuary. This is how you set up a stage. This is how you. If we just walk into these spaces and these rooms and whatever, and just kind of use our senses, and, and is there some way that we can interact with this? You know, can we make this room smell better? <laughs> like that's a fair thing, you know. Um, and but but I do think I do think that that's part of what the call of, of um, I think it has something to do with worship. Because worship has everything to do with awe. Right? And so we neglect those things that are, at, we, when we neglect those things, we diminish, we do diminish something. We don't diminish God, but we may diminish something that we might glean of him. Some, something that might lead us forward uh, together as a people. I think it's worth it. So those are kind of my closing thoughts. That's really good. Um, I'm going to take that from you, Chris. Is what is there something I could uh, offer people to touch? Music is very it's something we listen to, but is there something I can give them to look at? Not everyone is that's their primary way of engaging. Is there something people can look at? I, sometimes we hand out coloring pages in our church. The adults take them as well as the kids. You know, uh, is there something they can people can smell or taste? Uh, communion elements have, have some aspect of that. Is there something we can offer people as different ways of engaging with God and encountering God in a beautiful way? That's cool. I would just like to read from Psalm 27 to end. Yeah, let's do it. To land. This is from the voice translation. I am pleading with the eternal for this one thing, my soul's desire to live with him all of my days in the shadow of his temple, to behold his beauty and ponder his ways in the company of his people. Thank you for coming, you beautiful people. (laughs) 